Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, good morning, Journey Church. Good morning, friends and guests who are sojourning with us or trying us out for the first or second time. We are so happy that you're with here, us here this morning. Um, I want to begin by telling you about some research that was done in 1964 by two American psychologists, Martin Seligman and Stephen Mayer. They uh, did some original research into a phenomenon that would come to be known as learned helplessness. This is how they did the experiment. They took some dogs and they put the dogs in a two-compartment cage. And in one compartment where they would have the dog originally, they would introduce some mildly unpleasant stimuli, like loud noise or bright lights or uh, a mild electrical shock like that of reaching and touching an, a, a doorknob on a cold winter day. And in the first stage of the experiment, the dogs were uh, able to actually jump out of that compartment and into the other compartment where they did not experience that negative stimuli. In the second stage of the experiment, they restrained the dog. Or the dogs, should I say, because they did it over and over again. And this time, after some agitation, the dog would merely lie down and whimper. Third stage of the experiment, those same dogs that had been first given the opportunity to escape the, the negative stimuli, but now constrained, 100% of those animals, after being released from the constraints and being introduced to the negative stimuli, stayed in the first compartment. Even though it was unpleasant and there was a way out, they had been taught that they were powerless. And here's what occurred in 1968 is the theory came out and began to be studied with human beings. And in fact, learned helplessness infects all of us. It happens anytime. When we tell ourselves or believe that things that are well within our ability or locus of control are impossible. That whatever I do is not going to make a difference, therefore I'll stop trying. And why do I begin here this morning? I begin here this morning because learned helplessness has infected, I would argue, 100% of our thinking in the Western church concerning the spread of the gospel. That Jesus has given us a privilege and an opportunity, and yet we rehearse lines back to ourselves, and we shop excuses and say, well, I'm not gifted. I've tried that before and it didn't work. And as far as I can see, nobody's really actually that interested in the gospel or church or religion. And so learned helplessness has absolutely fundamentally impacted 
our understanding of ourselves and the open field and the open harvest that exists all around us. My goal this morning is to challenge this learned helplessness thinking that's invaded our efforts individually and corporately to make disciples, and and even more specifically this morning, to share the gospel with those who are currently outside. To challenge the idea, the mindset of learned helplessness, that nobody really wants to know the gospel, that I've tried and I've failed, it's probably not going to work, and I'm not gifted. I'm not an extrovert. I mess things up when I try to explain them. This is uh, talk number four in a five-part sermon series on the Great Commission. We started three weeks ago with the Missio Dei, the idea that our God is a missionary God. That mission flows out of the very character, nature, and attributes of the triune God himself. Therefore, if we're going to be godly, we are going to be missional people. The next week, we looked at uh, the mission of God, the redemptive plan of the ages, and that we are not only uh, the recipients of the Abrahamic blessing. We are brokers. The blessing doesn't stop with us now that Jesus rose from the dead and we've been born again into a living hope. It's not just for us We weren't saved just to be saved. We were saved to be sent. And then last week, we began to unpack some of the technicalities of the Great Commission itself so that we know there's only one mandate, make disciples. Um, Three modifiers, go uh, and baptize and teach them to observe. And so we've got our marching orders. But this morning, the question exists, who does the going Who does the baptizing? Who does the the sharing of the gospel? Um, Isn't that for the pastors? Isn't that for the the preachers? Isn't that for those with the gift of evangelism? Isn't that for the extroverts? Isn't that for those who actually know unsaved people? Which, sad to say, some of us don't have many friends that are unsaved. But isn't it for those other individuals? And there it is. It's the learned helplessness and shopping excuses as to why I'm here to play a supportive role. It's the big dogs, the big guns, the trained ones, the extroverts. Those are the ones that are to share the gospel. Surely not me. We reflect on the title of the sermon that I ripped out of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has an encounter with living God, and he says, here am I. And we say, here am I. I mean, we can't deny that God is God, and we are here. But instead of saying, send me, exclamation point, it's send me? Me? Surely not me. I'm an introvert. I get uncomfortable with that. I don't have the gift. I'm not a preacher. So we question and we, we uh, excuse our lack of commitment to the harvest. You may answer back, oh my goodness, Pastor Jim's going to lay a big burden on good people. You're overdoing it, Jim. 
Surely there are multiple gifts in the body and some, that you know, the hand and the eye and the foot. And then there's the mouth. Stop trying to make everyone the mouth, Jim. Because this is like heavy and burdensome. I mean, wasn't it the apostles, after all, that were on the mountain in Galilee who were given the great commission? Wasn't it the disciples, now apostles? Isn't there a gift of evangelism mentioned in the New Testament? And surely, there are those that are evangelistically non-gifted. And we can leave this to the job of the extroverts and evangelists. Whose job is evangelism in spreading the good news of the gospel? Anyway, in order to answer this question, we must go back to the Great Commission. So once again, if you would open your Bible, you should just put a, a, a business card in there. Matthew chapter 28. And we're actually going to start back where we started last week. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And we're going to reread that to find out whose job is it anyway. And hopefully undo some of this learned helplessness. This is what it says. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And you say, there it is. Um, there it is. It's for those people who were present at the time it was their job. Because I wasn't there. They were. Right? Well, where I want to take you next this morning in order to demonstrate a far greater net that has been cast for the entire church, I want to just merely back us up two verses. And I'm going to tell you this. On first blush, you're going to go, wow, you just made your case even worse, Jim. Let me show you what I mean. This is Matthew 28, verse 16 through 17, where we see the context, and we see the who that was actually there. And you go, there, it wasn't me. Listen, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And so on first blush, I'm going, which one of those 11 rascals were doubting Jesus? Because that's what it looks like it says. That most of them are convinced and they worship, but then there's a few that are still doubting. That's what it looks like. And in order to unpack this, let's first look at what do the words worshipped and the word doubted actually mean. Because these are power packed with word picture. The first one for worshipped uh, proskuneo means to literally to kiss the hand in fealty or reverence. Um, but there's a word picture beneath that that comes from the etymology of the word. It's a compound word. And the word picture in the original language is that of a pet dog licking the hand of his master in loyal adoration. It's a wonderful picture. And so that word worshipped means that, that there are some there that are bowing the knee, that are kissing the ring, swearing allegiance to their Lord and Master. Not a great picture for worship? 
We, you know, when we sing that we would be declaring, Lord and Master of my life, you have my life. Here am I. Send me. Whatever you want for my life, this is your prerogative, my Lord and Master. There is the worship word. But then there's this other word, doubted, distazo. It merely means twice or again. And so what it looks like is the 11 are there, and, and most of them are swearing allegiance to their Lord and Master, but some of them are, are thinking again, double-taking, second-guessing. But here's the problem. It doesn't add up to read it that way. And I'm going to show you how that's not actually the reading. Um, for this reason, when you do a study of the chronology, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and some of the epistles... What you discover is that this great commission takes place bookended by that first Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and the Ascension. This is actually, those are in Jerusalem. They have gone up to Galilee. This is somewhere uh, in, in the, the northern regions of Palestine on a mountain. And by this time, it can be demonstrated that all 11 of the disciples had had their moment of doubt and already repented. They are in absolute belief concerning the risen Christ. Even the guy that was not there in the upper room on Resurrection Sunday, he was missing. We call him Doubting Thomas. He has already been confronted by the risen Jesus and repented eight days after the resurrection in the chronology. He was not there on Sunday. He was not there the next. He met Jesus on the, the Monday, eight days after the resurrection. And that is when Doubting Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He is Kissing the ring of his Lord and Master. You go, who else could be there? Peter, the one who denied Christ three times. Guess what? You study the chronology. He's already been restored by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, a couple hours or a couple days before this moment on a mountain in Galilee. So the two biggest rascals are already in repentance and they're already fully convinced along with the rest of the nine or the rest of the eleven. And so this doesn't square. We go, well then who's doubting? Who's second guessing here? And the answer's simple. The fact that the eleven were called and the eleven are there doesn't mean only the eleven are there. In fact, the scripture does this many times where you go, oh, it sounds like only the 11. In fact, um, Acts 1.8 sounds like only the 11, but we find out there's 120 in the same chapter. And so the same idea here is there's more than 11. Who are they? Where are they from? And the answer is found from the Apostle Paul and what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. Follow me into just, it'll be up here, 1 Corinthians 15 says this starting in verse 3 through verse 6. For I, and by the way, if you don't know what we believe as a Christian church, as an evangelical church, 
uh, a church that believes in conversion? Like, what, what must I do to be saved? How do you become one of you? How do I get forgiven of my sins? How do I gain eternal life? Bam! Here it is. Here's what you must believe to be a part of Jesus and his church and go to heaven when you die. The gospel's so clear, but also if you go, we're going to share the gospel, we're all responsible. What's the gospel? I, I'm blanking out. Here it is. Okay, so whether you're on a journey and you need to come to faith, here it is. Or you go, I've done that, but I get confused. What is it again? Here it is. You follow? Here's what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It was prophesied and then it was fulfilled. Jesus died for the sins of the world, yours included. Do you have sin? Do you need him to be forgiven? He's the only one who can forgive, for he is the only one who paid your price. Here's what he goes on to say. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The sign of Jonah. Three days and nights in the belly of a fish. Jesus said, that's what I'm going to do. Three days and nights, or three days. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And then to the 12, the 12 that were left, that is, so that's a title, uh, a marker, even though it's down to 11, it's called the 12. Then watch this, verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. So here was my hunch this week. My hunch was, I bet you that happened on the mountain in Galilee at the Great Commissioning. And so I went back and I studied Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the apostles, uh, or the, pro- the, uh, the uh, epistles, and going, where's the only place where this could logically fit? And I came up with, it's the mountain in Galilee. That's the only account given. And then I went and I checked uh, Bible scholars and commentators, and guess what? I stopped at three because... Three out of three said, this is the Great Commission mountain in Galilee. And I said, good enough for me. I'm batting a thousand. I'm done. And so what's the point? What is the point that on the mountain of commissioning in Galilee, yes, all 11 are there, and in the language, they worshipped. We know that they're in repentance and they're committed. They're all in. And they might even say, but I'm an introvert, but I'm not gifted, but they are all in. If Jesus says it, we take it to the bank and we obey. They're in. But of this more than 500 crowd, there are many more that are all in. They're convinced. And this is interesting. They all see Jesus. Yet some doubted. What are they doubting? That that's Jesus? Perhaps not. See, the word doubting means twice. Or to think again. What are they thinking twice about? I would argue that there's a sense of me? You want it to be me? I'm the one? Those are the apostles. I see you, Jesus, but me? That's the doubt that they're struggling with. But what is the big picture that Jesus would actually make this 
this imperative statement. Go and make disciples. And it's not just to the 11. It's to the more than 500. What's the point that Jesus would declare this to the entire group there? And here's the point. First fill in the blank. It was entrusted. The mission to make disciples. To proclaim the good news of the gospel. To take it around the planet. The good news was entrusted to all of the church, including common, everyday, down-to-earth, run-of-the-mill Jesus followers. Not just the apostles, not just the preachers, not just the pastors, not just the evangelists. You go, but hold on, time out. I still wasn't there. That's them. I'm me. You see, you just learn helplessness. You're trying to get out of the cage, aren't you? And here's the deal. We were there. We were there in a representative manner. The entire church that existed at the time, whether it was the faithfully worshiping or the struggling doubters, they were there on the mountain to hear the commission. So we were there in a federal representative manner. I've got two arguments for this. One that flows right from verse 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Guess what? None of the 11 and none of the over 500 were going to live to the end of the age. And yet Jesus has not left them. So who is he with now? Us. The second one is taken from Acts chapter 1-8. Which is the Great Commission right before the Ascension in Bethany. Mount of Olives, and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Same language, but instead of the end of the age, it's end of the earth. And guess what? In their time, they were not going to be able to take the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue in their generation. They didn't. They couldn't. And yet Jesus gave the mandate to them. Why? Because he actually gave it to all of the church in every age for the entire mission. We were there. It is for us. And in this manner, Jesus prayed in the upper room in John 17, verse 20, where Jesus is praying for the gospel and the love that they would have for each other, the unity and the mission that they would have. And he says, I don't ask for these only, but also, also for those who will believe in me through their word. And guess what? We are here. He prayed for us. We were there. We are it. We were represented. We are the church, the ecclesia, the, the called out ones of Christ in any and every generation. We were there. But here's my next question. What is the evidence that they actually heard it that way? The over 500, the 11 plus the over 500, um, those worshiping and swearing allegiance and those who are thinking twice. What is the evidence in the end that they actually took it to heart and said, hey, it's not just Peter. It's not just Thomas. It's not just Andrew. And it's not someone that's described as an evangelist named Philip. Philip. Later on in the book of Acts. 
What is the evidence that the common, run-of-the-mill, everyday, down-to-earth Jesus follower saw this as his or her job description? And in order to touch on that, I want to take you to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Just to see the tracing out of the spread of the gospel and down to us to this day. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. This is immediately following the murder of a young man named Stephen. That you could go and see, that's an evangelist. That's the guy. He actually, Stephen was, he was a deacon, which means a table waiter for, for uh, Greek-speaking Jewish widows. He was a deacon, but he also loves the gospel, and so he ends up with an audience, and he declares the gospel in front of an audience, and they cannot stand it. They cannot stand him, so he is murdered. The scripture says that um, there's a young man named Saul of Tarsus that is actually holding the coats of the murderers with hearty approval. He liked it. Saul of Tarsus really enjoyed this stoning, this murder of this young Christian named Stephen. He liked it. And this is what it says immediately following that context. It says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. By the way, all of the converts up until this point seem to be camped out in Jerusalem. And so it's all the first church of Jerusalem. There is no other church. The church is the first church of Jerusalem, but there's a great persecution that breaks out and it says they were all scattered. That word, just diasporo, is, is the idea of throwing seeds far and wide like a farmer that's trying to get seed across his whole farm field. They're dispersed, and it goes on to say they're dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Samaria is uh, en- enemy territory. And many did not believe that the Samaritans could be loved by God, forgiven by God, brought into covenant relationship with God. And yet here they go out of the church of Jerusalem into these regions. And this is what it says. Um, The only ones that stayed behind were the apostles, the 11, plus James and Jude That's all I know for now. So those are called apostles later on in the epistles. The the brothers of Jesus now are leaders in the church. And it says that devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now watch this. This This is where we know. They took it to the bank. It's not just for the extrovert. It's not just for the apostles. It's not just for the disciples. It's for everyone that as they're terrorized and chased away from their church home in Jerusalem, it says this, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I'm going to just cite this. This is a really unfortunate translation of the word uh, into preaching. Um, Because when we hear that, again, we think, see, that's for a preacher. That's for you, Jim. That's for Billy Graham. That's for Louis Palau. That's for Greg Laurie. That's for whoever we think the evangelists of our day are. Preaching, can I tell you, unfortunate, because the word in the Greek language is euangelizo. Euangelo is where we get the word evangelism 
or good news or gospel. They're not preaching, they're just sharing. And that's what I have a problem with that translation is, is, is again, we're shopping excuses. I'm not a preacher. I'm not good in front of a crowd. Hey, this is not what you think it is. They're merely sharing the great hope that they have in their life. The mission of making disciples and spreading the good news of Jesus. Forgiveness of sins. Redemption from an empty life. The coming of the kingdom of God was owned by the entire church. On the whole and in the part. Every single one. Even these scattered, common run-of-the-mill, everyday down-to-earth believers are just leaking the hope that they have as they're chased from towns and villages. They heard the word of the Lord and they took it to heart. There's no one famous in this group. There's no one that's outspoken in this group. There's no one terribly gifted mentioned in this group. Just normal believers running from persecution and they're sharing the good news. And I want to just cite uh, commentary by John Stott, um, British evangelical theologian and pastor. He says this, that unless we understand this, we're going to have a big problem. He says the task, and he means specifically in the context, the task of evangelism is beyond the power of the clergy. That's another fancy word for important trained people. Important spiritually, theologically trained people. It's beyond the power of the clergy. There are only two alternatives. Either the task will not be done, or we must do it together. A task force of ministers and people thoroughly trained and harnessed as a team for evangelism. And that's how we've got to see it. That it's all of our job together to get the good word out. There's a second thing I want you to see in this Acts chapter 8 text. So we're going to double back on that instead of the first text and see this. I want you to understand that they were not waiting for a better day. They were not waiting for more training They weren't waiting for greater spiritual depth and growth in their life. They certainly weren't waiting for better circumstances. And the fill in the blank is this. They lived it out even in the midst of crazy. Crazy being a crazy life. I want to take you back through this and point out a few more words. There arose on that day a great persecution. That is an an, a bad day. And when it's described, um, wow, we, we don't want to pray for this. We want to pray against this. It says that the church in Jerusalem, they were all scattered. I've already, already talked about that. I mean, it's so bad they've got to leave. They're leaving jobs. They're leaving friends and family. They're leading, leaving uh, occupational guilds where they belong, where they make their money, unions, where they actually get accredited, they're leaving all these things. This is not fun. This is not good. You don't pray for this, for anyone. You do not pray for persecution 
of the church in America because it'll cleanse us. You don't do that. You pray against it and that we'll still be clean. Because this is really bad. It goes on to say that, that this guy Saul, verse 3, was ravaging the church. The word picture here is of, of like a, a predator that finally kills his prey and shreds it limb from limb. Bloody muzzle and specks of bone. and It's a nasty picture of what he's doing ravaging the church. Think about how intrusive, entering house after house, illegal search and seizure, dragging them off, men and women. There's no uh, deference to, to the, the more fair sex. I mean, if you name Christ, we'll rip you in pieces too. This is savage. He commits them to prison. Uh, now, Saul is going to become Paul, the apostle. He's going to regret these, these moments the rest of his life. But right now, he thinks he's doing good for God, the God of the Jews. And he's all about it. And the more suffering and screaming, the more he is elated. Why do I tease that out? Because I want you to see how horrific it was for these scattered and yet you can't shut them up. What's the point? So many of us, again, learned helplessness. We go, my marriage sucks. I'm miserable. I can't stop thinking about it. My kids are just breaking my heart. I'm freaking out. I'm spending every penny I have to try to save my son who's on drugs. Or, or maybe it's like, look, I can only handle a few things. I got anxiety already. Please don't put another thing on me. My life is hard. I'm just trying to survive this life with my faith intact. Don't lay another, another thing on me. And what I'm saying is like, listen, a sincere hope in, in the risen Christ and in, in the hope of eternal life. I want you to hear this. If you are in Christ today and you're here and your life is hard, can I make you just a beautiful promise? That today, here on planet Earth, in this lifetime, this is the closest to hell that you will ever get. It only gets better from here for all eternity, if you are in Christ. But can I just tell you, for those who are outside of Christ, even if their life is really good and you're jealous, I mean, they don't even follow Christ. How do they get that? Guess what? If they don't turn and believe in Jesus, this is the closest to heaven that they're ever going to get. And so what should that do in us? That even if it's a very bad day and you're disjointed and, and you're all jammed up emotionally or relationally or maritally or familially or your career's a dead end or you're just sucking rocks. You go, I can't. I don't want to talk to that guy. Listen, if we can just remember, greater is he than, than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in us. The hope of eternity, even in the worst of circumstances, look at them. Look at them. They're living it out even in the worst of circumstances. I think this goes back to the original call that we can identify with. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'm not asking you to just be fishers of men. I'm asking you to follow the master. And no matter how difficult the, your life is or heavy or burdensome or strapped for cash or whatever it is that you are living in, follow him. Guess what he does 100% of the time? He makes us fishers of men. It's a universal, 
you can't undo this. You follow Jesus, you're going to love sharing the good news with those outside. This is reflected again in Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and I just want to share this with you because they're in persecution. And he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, this isn't the word for worship from Matthew 28, but it's the same word picture. Bowing the knee in Christ is set apart in my heart as Lord and Master. So, um, honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And the idea is this, a genuine hope of even if your life is hard and crazy, remember your hope. And that no matter what you're going through, you can offer that hope. Say, you know what? I've got some things in my life that are really keeping me close to God because it's really bad. Having a medically fragile child, uh, a kid with special needs, and a life situation where one of you is always on if you're still married. Many marriages fall apart who have high stakes, special needs children. And even in there, like, look, I've got a lot of hard things in my life. I'm a single parent. But you know what? I know Jesus loves me and I know where I'm going. And I can offer that hope. No matter where I'm coming from in this day. They lived it out even in the midst of crazy. Here's our bottom line for our message today. We're it. Plan A. We have the responsibility and privilege. I want you to hear that. It's a privilege. What, what greater joy could there be than to share the hope of eternal life with someone that doesn't know about it? What's the, what's the greater privilege? Win the lottery? Good luck with that. Probably ruin your life. There's nothing better. Jesus said the harvesters are paid good wages. What are the wages? Souls brought to eternal life. Paul told Timothy, the, the hardworking farmer should be the first to share in the proceeds. What's he talking about? Hard work in the ministry over time. It's brutal and discouraging, but one day the harvest will come. And you're going to share in that, Timothy. What greater joy. There's a joy. There's a privilege. We have the responsibility and pri privilege to watch this. Gossip the gospel. Whenever and wherever we are. Look at them being scattered. From the mountaintop, many, many weeks later, they're being scattered out of Jerusalem. And they're going about just leaking the gospel. You go, gossip, that's a bad word. Can you use that word? That's a bad word. Um, here's how I'm using it. Um, have you heard the latest? Do you know the newest? Wait until you hear. And can I tell you I'm on, I'm on solid ground because church historians for decades have been using this phrase as they've studied the first and second and third century church that they've discovered that the way that the, that the gospel actually permeated the world at a rate of 40% growth every decade. Exponential growth from 12 or 11 to 120 to 500 plus to 3,000 on Pentecost to another 2,000 or another 5,000. The church, when it was scattered, was at least 8,000. And that's probably just counting the males. So it's a mega church that gets blown apart. 
in the scattered seeds around the world. But what's the idea here? Is the way it spread was not just the big preaching moments, but the church could not shut up. They had a secret that they couldn't keep in. And they, quote, gossiped the gospel. This is taken out of Michael Green's excellent scholarly book, Evangelism in the Early Church. It's a, it's a, a scholarly examination of the first, sec- second, and third century churches. And how did the gospel, how was it understood? How did it spread throughout the world? So I commend that if, if you want to read a little bit, just a step beyond what I'm comfortable with, but I, I've read it two times now. This is taken from, from his book. The very disciples themselves were significantly laymen. That means they were not trained theologically. Devoid of formal theological or rhetorical training. Christianity was from its inception a lay movement. They were not professionals. So it continued for a remarkably long time. Now, as to the spread of the gospel, must often have been not formal preaching But the informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances, they did it in homes, wine shops, on walks, and around market stalls. They went everywhere, and I quote, gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who were not paid to say such things. They weren't getting a paycheck. It meant more coming from the unpaid non-clergy than it did from the paid clergy. It meant more, and because of that, more of them believed through those kinds of messengers. Pastor Charles Lindquist says this, what if we invested as much of our day in gossiping the good news as gossipers do in sharing their morsels? How would that work? What if we just leaked Jesus in conversation every day, every day? Here's something that I do. This is just me. Don't do this. Um, I greet people. Yes, I am extroverted. I test actually as an introvert too, though. And so I run into people. Uh, Chad Barker, where are you at? We were bow hunting last Tuesday morning. We meet people on the trail around the backside of Sabino Canyon. We're dressed in camo. And they're like, uh-oh, they're going to get really freaked out. We got bows and glasses. But there's like, how are you doing today? Um, And my first hurdle is not even to get to Christ, just to get them to not call the sheriff. Because I know I'm well within my legal boundaries and limits, but they freak out sometimes. So I'm extroverted. How are you doing this morning? And seeing where the conversation goes, and nine times out of ten, I'm stunned that people are like diffused, and they're like, wow, what are you doing? You hunting javelina? Oh, what are you, deer? I haven't seen any today, and... What's that like? Does it taste good? And they start, when you do it this way, now here's what I do in in normal, just meeting people I don't know, but also people that I do know or know a little bit, they say, how are you doing today? I go, how are you doing today? That's what starts it, because a lot of times we have to go first, and I go, how are you doing today? They say, oh, I'm doing great. They always say that. They go, how about you? And I go, better than I deserve. And only about 3% know that I stole that from Dave Ramsey. But I did. And I stole it because it's good. And here in Tucson, Pima County, more often than not, when I say better than I deserve, and they go, oh, I'm sure that's not true. It happens all the time. 
Like people are convinced that I'm a good person. And I have to go, oh no, I'm a rascal. And they just gotta go, huh? And it's, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying that it works. I'm not saying that I'm leading all of Tucson to Christ this way. I'm just saying I'm trying. I'm thinking. And so that's my line. That's my approach. People I've never met, people that I've met a little bit, you've probably heard me say it. I ripped it off from Dave Ramsey. It's a great line. But you just be ready to say, oh no, I'm a rascal. I need, a, I need forgiveness. And you get ready and then they go, tell me more about that. Because you're just trying. And again, not with total strangers only, but people in your world. Gossip, the good news. It's a privilege. We don't got to, but we get to. You say, but I'm not gifted. You still didn't answer that. What's the evangelist for? Isn't there a gift of evangelism? I mean, I actually know that person. That's what you're thinking. Can I give you a biblical definition of that from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12? This is what it says. God gave some as apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do all the ministry. You're off the hook. Right? That's not what the verse says. To equip the saints, common, run-of-the-mill, everyday, down-to-earth Jesus followers. To equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. The evangelists, if they're truly evangelists, are actually training everyone else. Giving them a bump, giving them encouragement, championing them when they get it right, celebrating. That's the job of the evangelist. Jim Donahue, pastor who writes for Gospel Coalition, says this, It was a job not just for the outgoing, not just for the socially gifted, but for everybody. Christians don't need to be uniquely gifted to evangelize. Rather, we need to be equipped. Amen? We won't all have the same passion or effectiveness when it comes to reaching unbelievers, but we can all grow. Right? I believe that with all my heart. As we close this morning, I want to do something. I want you to close your eyes, and I want to take you back to the mountaintop where we were all represented in the over 500 and the 11. I want to ask you, what do you feel, what do you think when you hear the commission come from the words of Jesus himself? Go, make disciples. You, you make disciples. Figure it out. Be faithful in it. What are your thoughts about that? Are you one that says, Lord, Master, I'm not good at that. That terrifies me. I'm scared. I'm so unqualified. My life is a hot mess. I am spiritually shallow. You got the wrong guy. But I hear and obey anyway. Or are you one that's going to be jammed up, double take? Did he really mean me? I don't think he meant me. I don't think I have to. I think I'll mess things up worse than they already are. This morning, can I invite you to go, look, you might not feel gifted, but you are called. And would you just whisper to Jesus, Lord and Master, I kiss your hand. 
I hear and I obey. I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know who, but I'm willing, even when my life is crazy, take my life. Here am I. Send me. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.